We begin this afternoon by reading the passage that will constitute the section of God's Word from which we will be ministering, Psalm 133, and the three verses of this song of degree. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. You will recall that last Sunday, while looking into this passage of Scripture, we emphasized the idea of beholding the beauty. And we did that because we were given due attention to the first word of the first verse, which displays for us the emotional energy behind the inspiration of this song of degree. There is indeed a stepping up of things that is evident in Psalm 133 that is in keeping with these songs of degree. And we will be giving more attention to the way in which this stepping up metaphor is manifest within this passage. But the first sort of raising and moving forward that this psalm captures is the raising of our heart, the raising of our attention, the moving forward of our focus. And as I pointed out last Sunday, both the Hebrew and the Greek translation of the Hebrew bring to our attention an interjection by which the teaching of this psalm is ministered to us. In Hebrew, the word is hene. In Greek, the word is edu. And as I again stated last Sunday, an interjection is an emotional beckoning to the hearer or reader toward the recognition of something that is unusual, something that is worth contemplating. And so, dear brothers and sisters, again, we bring our attention to this psalm. Having already had a session of seeking to behold something of the visage, something of the beauty that captured the psalmist's heart. We understand when we correctly take in why there would be such an emotional element to this first term, when we have already stated that this interjection points out something that is unusual, something that must be contemplated because it is so unusual, we understand that this would only be the case if the following material that the psalmist then speaks of in Psalm 133 was an uncommon sight. For if the rest of what the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 133 was everyday, common, readily available, very usual, then he would not have started the psalm with this interjection saying, Behold this! And so we 
examined the scriptures last Sunday and we pondered the question of when this particular sight occurred. Perhaps it occurred against the backdrop of disunity. That consideration is not something that we specifically contemplated last Sunday, and so we will contemplate it briefly here as we transition into this week's emphasis. It's possible that such an event is the backdrop to Psalm 133. David was, a, was as a matter of fact, in the midst of one such event. It occurred in 1023 BC by Bishop Usher's reckoning, and you'll find the account in 2 Samuel chapter 19. I'm going to begin to relay the context to you from the ninth verse. This is following the ordeal that surrounded Absalom's rebellion against David and indeed against Israel, something we did touch upon last Sunday. We recognize that whenever David was dealing with that particular situation and looked out his window and saw his son conspiring against him, clearly that was not a moment where he would have said, Behold, how good and how pleasant this sight is. But in 2 Samuel chapter 19, this ordeal has come to some sort of resolution because Absalom has been killed. Indeed, he was killed against David's wishes Joab, his commander-in-chief, effectively carried out the act. As a result, of course, the northern tribes of Israel, the ten tribes that had aligned themselves effectively with Absalom, well, now the battle was over and David had won. And we begin in verse 9, And all the people, that is most specifically the northern tribes, which fled to their tents after the defeat of Absalom. You can read that in verse 8 of this same chapter. The northern tribes, we read, were at strife throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying the king saved us, that is David, saved us out of the hand of the enemies, and he delivered us out of the hand of the Philistines. And now, most recently, he has fled out of the land for Absalom, or because of Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why speak ye not a word of bringing the king back? I suppose you recognize what is going on here. You see, disunity and strife does not beget unity and the beautiful picture of brethren dwelling together in unity. The northern tribes against the will of God had anointed someone who presented themselves instead of David's, instead of God's appointed minister named David, and they thought in the short term that it would be a pleasant thing to unify around Absalom, that somehow that would better their situation, somehow that would favor their cause. But in the providence of God, that rebellion was brought to an end. And we do not see that out of it developed unity among the northern tribes before, because the original disunity was not sown from the mind and heart of the Lord. And so the leaven was still among them. And they now were at a strife among themselves, debating on what their disposition should be toward David. 
So they're having to work and develop and grow and mature spiritually while they could have been wrestling with that whenever Absalom was instilling the disfavor and the disagreement and the dissatisfaction that he was selling to their hearts. They could have resisted that, worked through that, grown spiritually, understood the idea of God's divine ordination and and plan and so forth, his divine order. But now we are discovering that they're having to make up for lost time, if you will, for there is still a strife that is among them. Now, thus far, having read, you might think, well, how could this be the place where David might have been inspired to write Psalm 133? Well, as I stated, perhaps the inspiration came against the backdrop of disunity. When once unity is rebirthed, then unity begins to emerge again. And the elements of unity begin to show themselves in some degree of reality. Especially if one is sensitive to the dynamics of disunity, then you would understand how a man might have an interjection within his spirit and say, behold, take a look, stop, freeze, look at this. This looks like unity. So as we continue to read from the 11th verse, we recognize that David, though having failed the Lord, is nonetheless the Lord's anointed. Nonetheless, he is separated from his mother's womb and called by God's grace As the Lord's anointed, he isn't just a bearer of oil in the sense of the olive oil. He is also a bearer of God's giftings and God's heart and God's understanding. And David sees the sheep scattered upon the hills, the ten tribes already looking like they might be divided from Judah and from Benjamin, something that is going to occur actually later. But he sees the insipid Evidence of that kind of motion within their spirit. For the time being, it has been quelled. And David, of course, is mourning the loss of his son. Joab even says, you seem to love your enemies more than your friends. And no doubt, David had to wrestle with that disposition. But one of the things that David didn't do is he did not visit revenge upon the ten northern tribes, which Joab likely would have left to himself. It's at least very possible So it is perhaps the case that David had an overweening regard to Absalom, but maybe not. Maybe the son of Zeruiah could have used a little bit of David's compassion. But in any event, the shepherd boy from Bethlehem who cares about the sheep is looking out upon that scene and realizes he has to stir himself up to do something about this. Because the people of God are without an anointed leader. They are in disunity and it's only going to fall apart further if somebody doesn't do something about this under the direction of God, of course. And so first David turns to the priests. That would be the thing to do if you want to be under the direction of God. Verse 11, And King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. They had been loyal to David, you might recall, saying, Speak unto the elders of Judah. Look at David's strategy. He's aware that the northern tribes are having this discussion among themselves, and he certainly could have easily aligned himself with those that favored bringing back the king, that is, David himself, into a stated place of kingship over Israel. He could have done that and played the political game. But no, in wisdom, he goes to the elders of Judah, the elders of the tribe that was faithful to David. 
for whatever reasons. Let's hope the best of reasons. But nonetheless, they were faithful to him. They did support him. But he says to them, why are ye the last to bring the king back to his house? Seeing the speech of all Israel, northern Israel that is, is come to the king, even to his house. I'm hearing what they're saying. I'm hearing that they want me back. Ye are my brethren. Ye are bone of my flesh. Wherefore then are ye the last to bring back the king? Now this may strike you as something in the direction of a rebuke or a reproof. But really, I think you should read it as the language of sincere friendship, of the language of manly conversation with the hearts of those that David loves. And he anticipates that in this serious manner, they will themselves rise up with a manly response. And he is effectively saying, you're my brother and you're my family and you are they that have been with me and I have been with you. Why aren't you supporting what I'm doing in this challenging time? And David goes on in the 13th verse and he says, and say to Amasa, one of David's nephews, the son of his sister Abigail, say to Amasa, art thou not of my bone and of my flesh? God do so to me and more also if thou be not captain of the host before me continually in the room of Joab, another one of his nephews, the son of his sister Zeruiah. What David is doing here is he is exercising justice. He isn't excommunicating Joab, but he is pointing out that Joab, for all of his qualities, he does not listen to David's commands, David's directions. The latest thing resulted in the killing of Absalom, which he did not want to occur. But Joab felt it ought to occur. And Joab's not crazy. He's sometimes right. But that's not the point. How is the kingdom ever going to flow toward unity with a character like Joab, who is too hot to push with his own view? And so David is indicating to the observing hearts of the elders of Judah, that he understands this phenomenon. No doubt there was awareness among the elders of phenomenon, uh, among the elders of Judah about the phenomenon of Joab, and he makes it clear that he will put Amasa in Joab's place. This is very interesting, incidentally, because of some things we'll be emphasizing as this message unfolds. You see here that there's an element of David not having respective persons, selecting from within his own family because of the need to exercise justice as a part of supporting biblical unity. This is not just a matter of everybody just gather together, let's have a group hug. It doesn't really matter what your behavior is. It doesn't matter whether you respect God's divine order or not. We just want to have unity at all costs. After all, you're my family. And there's a certain argument toward that. We should be deferential toward our family and give much grace and much leeway. Our biological family, the family of God, there is very much an argument toward that. And I believe that David did give Joab a lot of space, but Joab kept jabbing and jabbing and jabbing till he jabbed Absalom to death. And David said, I think in his spirit, in his repentant heart, as he's quieter before the Lord these days, he's more humble, he's more contemplative and prayerful. David's a different man. He's not a weak man. He's a thoughtful man. 
But you don't hear as much about what's going on in the background because that's in the secret place of his communion with God. But you see the evidence of it that David recognizes that as much as I love Joab and respect his strength, if the kingdom is going to come to unity, I'm going to have to put Amasa in his place. And it seems as though that that decision of David's was blessed of God because we read in the 14th verse of 2 Samuel 19, and I believe the he would be David. Some argue that the Hebrew would allow it to be Amasa. I don't disagree that the syntax would allow that. I'm not so sure that the context would. In, any, in either event, it still works, but I read it as David. The antecedent to the pronoun he, I think, is David, not Amasa. The subject is what David is doing, or the theme is what David is doing, in my opinion. And he bowed the heart of all the men of Judah, even as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word unto the king, Return thou and all thy servants. So David returned and came to Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to conduct the king over the Jordan. And if you continue to read this chapter eventually to Jerusalem. David was outside the confines, if you will, the borders of Israel as he had to escape for his life. And now you see this beautiful picture of Judah journeying to the Jordan River, meeting David at Gilgal. Their hearts were bowed. Their hearts were moved as one man. And we know that the northern tribes were in agreement with this decision. Ultimately, those that favored returning David, that carried the disposition of the northern tribes as well. And so they all met David at Gilgal and they conducted him over the Jordan River. Well, I think it's very possible that when David beheld that site against the backdrop of all the disunity, of all the pain and suffering of what had recently transpired, recognizing his own sinful role in these events, that when the hearts of all the men of Judah were bowed as the heart of one man and they all moved to conduct themselves to Gilgal and bring David back, it could have been in that moment that David, as he sees this great company coming to re-establish him in his God-given position and recognizing what that could mean for all of Israel, it could have been an occasion when he said, behold how good and how pleasant it is to finally see brethren dwelling together in unity. While that may have been the case, it is also true to point out that as the concluding verses of this very same chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 19, relay to us, the unity that we just read about, the one-heartedness, the humble bowing of the hearts for a common cause of carrying forward God's original plan, it didn't last very long because it wasn't very deep. I remind you of what we were looking at last Sunday, discussing the concept of common seed and stating that though Psalm 133 is common seed in the sense that it's a well-known verse, its message is by no means common, everyday, average, blasé, take it for granted. It's not a big deal at the end of the day. To the contrary, dear brothers and sisters, this 
common seed still comes from heaven. And it only needs an uncommon heart within which to be placed and to be rooted and germinated and to bear lasting fruit. But it was not the case that it found such hearts on the other side of the events that we just read. And I believe that that is true because it isn't possible to really appreciate and really enter into a disposition of unity at the snap of a finger. You can't resist the trials that would prepare you and change your heart so that you understand the value of unity and you know what the cost of it looks like so that you will go after that good and pleasant thing. It isn't the case, as I say, dear brothers and sisters, that that's the sort of thing that can develop in a moment if indeed the trials that are designed to work that spiritual fruit within us are neglected. As I've already stated to you a moment ago, that the northern tribes neglected that test and set of circumstances within which they could have resisted the uh, the stirrings of disunity that came through a man with good words and fair speeches who had the name Absalom. You see, what I have in mind here is the truth that Peter teaches in 2 Peter chapter 1, and this particular portion presents to us one of the possibilities within which Psalm 133 can begin to emerge. And I think you will see that the circumstances that Peter speaks of are noticeably different than that which occurred in 2 Samuel chapter 19. What happened in 2 Samuel 19 was marvelously all of the sudden, and sometimes that sort of occurrence grabs your attention, whereas the process and the hard work and the turning of the wheels that is crushing the grain is not respected for what it will eventually produce. Remember with me, Peter says, as we spoke about last Sunday, that there is such a thing as a like precious faith. There is a common faith. There is a common salvation. But the churches of Jesus Christ, at least those that call upon his name, and I mean that in terms of how they label themselves and they allow the name of Jesus on their lips. The churches through the centuries, dear brothers and sisters, would not have the division, would not have the dispositions of sinful disputes among themselves if this like precious faith and what it actually points to was more deeply appreciated. Because this like precious faith speaks about something that is made available to us so that we can be partakers of God's divine nature. It speaks secondly of having escaped the corruption that is in the world through desire. Those corrupting desires, those corrupting energies within our spirit that drive us in directions that are outside of the will of God and can thereby drive wedges into relationships, whether between ourself and God or between one another. This like precious faith has the power and ability to help us escape that corruption that is in the world through lust, to help us move toward divine nature, God's character. 
But this does not transpire at the snap of the finger. This does not happen because the pastor preached on Psalm 133 last week. This doesn't happen because the idea of unity is something that you're in general agreement with. Peter says we have to give all diligence. When once we indeed open our hearts to listen to the faith that was once for all delivered over to the saints. If we are truly hearing that message, then we are recognizing we have to add to our faith virtue. We have to develop our character in a virtuous direction. And then we continue to add knowledge because we recognize that as we see the needs of our life, we begin to see how much more, how much further we need to grow. The light shines within the darkness and you comprehend that darkness and you come to the light to see if your deeds are wrought in God and you recognize in so many cases they are not. And so you desire more and more knowledge. And then knowledge brings us to temperance. Temperance to endurance. Endurance to godliness and godliness to brotherly kindness and brotherly kindness to love. My point is fairly straightforward. Peter describes a process. If you take seriously these several steps, you will realize that if you're really going to reach brotherly love and charity, the idea that just because you come to a church, just because you collect yourself together the idea that you certainly therefore have unity is contrary to the rigor that the scripture represents in terms of how that's actually achieved. For as we pointed out last Sunday and will no doubt sprinkle throughout these teachings, if you do gather together as a group of people and you raise unity as the primary objective, you have neglected the faith. You've neglected virtue. You've neglected temperance. You've, neglect, you've neglected godliness and endurance. And that isn't the version of brotherly kindness that Peter is speaking about. And that will become evident as we continue this Sunday to look into some further ideas in Psalm 133. I have for a subtitle and therefore an emphasis this Sunday the following. What is it like? I suppose you recall with me that the title of these teachings is Looking for Unity. Last time, we talked about Behold the Beauty. For the remainder of our time together this Sunday, we're going to address the question, What is it like? And we do that for a very good reason, because the psalmist himself senses the need to tell us what it's like. He gives us two qualities and two similes. He begins, of course, with the two qualities that we've already said something about. He says that it is good and it is pleasant. Those are qualities. They are not quantities. Unity is not primarily a matter of quantity. Before anything else, it is a matter of quality. Remember with me the Proverb that states, though hand be joined in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished. Now that remark enables us to see 
that not only is it the case that unity is not primarily a matter of quantity, though often it is taken for that, if you see large numbers of people together in a certain confined space, you just assume that there is unity there in a way that God is pleased with. In a similar sense, when hand joins with another hand, at that moment you might think it's wickedness, if it is something contrary to God's word. But then if it joins with a third hand, and a fourth hand, and a fifth hand, and a tenth hand, and a hundredth hand, and a thousandth hand, and then if they joined and been doing this thing over the centuries, and almost everybody does it, then we begin to think that wickedness is somehow a factor of quantity. If enough people agree together on a certain thing, it is no longer as wicked as we once thought it was, whatever the particular issue is. If the churches of Jesus Christ have been doing something for very many centuries, for a very long time, and a lot of people have been doing it, then if it's the basis of some sort of argument for unity, then it must be now good. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the kind of good and pleasant unity that Psalm 133 is speaking of under the inspiration of the Spirit, this beautiful unity, it is not a matter of counting, but a matter of counting the cost. This is precisely the idea that John is referring to in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 2, when he says, this is how we know if we have the love of the children of God. When we love God and we keep His commandments, we know that we have the love of the brethren, which is the basis of unity, when we first love God and we keep the commandments. And so I hope you'll remember with me once again when we were investigating where could you find this unity. And we were on a search last Sunday and discovered that in a very large portion of the Bible, let alone human history, you would not find it there. But one place where there was a possibility that it would present itself was discovered in 1 Peter chapter 1, where we are told in verse 22, if you will submit to the purifying of your soul through the obedience of the truth that the Holy Spirit is guiding you, into, and he's come to guide us into all the truth, a whole counsel of the Lord. That's what the Spirit of God wants. That's what he wants to see within his family. He wants to see them unified within the entire faith that was once for all delivered over to the saints. Then where that truth is taught, you will discover it will seek to purify your soul, the washing of the water of the word, the purifying fires of almighty truth. It's only, my dear brothers and sisters, that after that process can you truly move into what the Bible calls unhypocritical love of the brethren. This is a love of the brethren not falsely so called. And when you arrive at that, then see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. That's the time to recognize that we're operating in a unity in a, in a, and in a love that is through the process of purifying our hearts and obeying the Spirit. And if that is developing within us, then turn up the burners. Turn up the desire in your heart. Seek that with all your might. Love one another with a pure heart fervently. And so sense 
This unity that we're looking for is not primarily a matter of quantity. It is a matter of quality. And this is what the psalmist teaches us. Then, dear brothers and sisters, let's give our attention for a moment to these two qualities. First of all, it is moral. And here I want you to understand how this is working. I stated at the outset of the teaching that this is a stepping up of things. You should understand this song of degree as teaching that brings you up a step at a time so that you can enter up into the holy, into the beautiful. You can follow God's process and genuinely arrive at something meaningful as opposed to just thinking as though you can walk a straight line in any direction and drift about anywhere you wish and wind up at the blessing that the psalmist is speaking of. No, he says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. First, he says it has to be good. This is the first step. Unity is first pursued because it is right in God's eyes, whether or not it is pleasant to your heart. Because, dear brothers and sisters, your heart may not yet appreciate God's art. You may not yet appreciate the divine design, the Almighty's sense of artistry. And therefore, when the Spirit teaches us about unity, and we are going to be transformed, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and we have this like precious faith, all the possibility is in the seed, but you have to pay attention to the way that that seed germinates and how it all develops. And unity is first a matter of the good. It is first something we pursue because it is a moral obligation. It is right in God's eyes. And I want to emphasize yet again to your spirit that the beautiful that follows is the beautiful that is in the eye of the beholder who is God. And if beauty is in the eye of the beholder, it might not be yet in your eyes if you can't appreciate God's works of art. There are various types of art that I have no particular sympathy for, and nor am I striving, as a matter of fact, to arrive at sympathy and appreciation of some of the modern art or even art over history. Now, it might be that someone likes rap music but can't appreciate Johann Sebastian Bach. Well, it could be because you haven't yet developed and learned how music actually works and understood the mechanics of it so you can appreciate the beauty. And it's this sort of concept that we're discussing here as it relates to unity. We must all recognize, though, we have been called by someone who sees the actual product in a most energetic fashion to behold it, and so we're eager to discover it, and we might feel as though we want to just anoint ourselves that we understand it and we appreciate it and we love it, and of course it's already there in my heart. And you might feel as though it's anticlimactic or somewhat of a downer for me to tell that the first thing you have to grapple with in the growth toward biblical unity is its moral element. That God calls you to his description of unity, whether it's pleasant to you or not. And I don't believe that anyone really grows into this beautiful, 
brotherly unity that God is speaking of, who hasn't first encountered resistance in his or her spirit, where you haven't wanted to be unified, you haven't wanted to follow God's divine order, you've wanted to run with Absalom, you've wanted to change the message somehow or other, but you wrestled in your spirit and submitted yourself to God's ethical code, and you chose the good. Why, as a matter of fact, the disunity that manifests itself itself in homes everywhere, where husbands divorce wives, wives divorce husbands, children dishonor their parents, and parents treat their children with disregard. It is because one is not observing God's divine order. Your commitment to your wife, your commitment to your husband, your commitment to your parents, your commitment to your child is first of all a moral requirement. It is a command for you to love your wife. It is a command for you not to drive asunder, set asunder what God has joined together. Let no man put asunder. Amen, brothers and sisters. Amen. People are looking for beautiful unity. They're looking for the feeling of unity in my home. I don't know if I can stay around my wife or my husband, or I don't know if I care to be around my dad or my mom, or I don't know if I want my children and my hair any longer. They're looking for the feeling. They're looking for the pleasant. And you have to start with the moral. James tells us that the wisdom that is from above is first pure, and then it's peaceable, then it's gentle easy to be entreated, full of mercy and of good fruits. It's the same idea that the psalmist is relaying to us. It is first good. That's not an arbitrary arrangement of things. That is the first step toward the entire thing that he's beholding, which is covered in the three verses. But the first thing you get is the relaying of two qualities. First, it's good. And similarly, as I just said, James says, wisdom that is from above is first pure. And there's no question that within that purity, we want to mix and intertwine peaceableness, gentleness, the fruit of righteousness sown in peace of them that make peace. This is certainly the case lest we be puffed up with our wisdom and we fail to edify one another. But you do no edification. You're not building anything that's going to last if you're not building with the pure word of God in your counsel to your heart or to others and in the preaching of God's word. The second quality is that it is beautiful. This is the second step. This is not stage one. This is stage two. This cannot be emphasized too frequently, particularly in this age of human existence. You said, don't you mean in this, in this time, like, you know, 2021? No. Read your own Bible. In this age of fallen humanity, this cannot be emphasized too much. We are so prone to fall for the emotional and the visual that we will go for the quantity and call it the beautiful just because it looks like it is something approximating what we all desire. And that is to see brothers and sisters gathered together, rejoicing, finally getting along and not separated and finding a common purpose in Jesus and in true religion. And sometimes we're willing to negotiate purity out of it. And certainly we're not arguing here that 
It is necessary that you literally dot every I and cross every T precisely the same. But we're talking about the proper process to true biblical unity. First, it must be good. First, it must be pure if it is from above. And within that, we add peaceable, gentle, full of mercy. Hallelujah. Amen. And so when we deal with each other, even as a pastor, when I seek to promote this within the assembly, I want as a servant of the Lord to promote gentleness and to be apt to teach and meekness, looking and dealing with one another so that the enemy cannot gain advantage over our soul. But brothers and sisters, my anchor is on the pure and we're directing and seeking to narrow our hearts toward the pure. And that is the way that it must be. You see, even in the life of the Lord Jesus, and who would ever argue that Jesus was not a beautiful person, that he did not have a beautiful personality? Was he not the fairest among 10,000? I want you to know that this dear soul, if you will, if I may state it that way, because indeed he did have a human soul, this dear soul that was born of a virgin miraculously and became such a beautiful entity that you might think he is just simply otherworldly and just dropped in here out of heaven and needed no process. No, dear brothers and sisters, the prophet Isaiah says within the context of the very promise of this dear child being given that he is going to have to first learn to refuse the evil and choose the good. We can never become like Christ as an individual or as a church until we first value the good. We learn to refuse the evil. And choose the good. And if you understand the connection between these arrangements of ideas and the deep reality of divine design, almighty artistry, the true beautific vision that God would give on any particular issue, if you have any training at all in the philosophy of aesthetics, which I don't say you need, but if you do understand how men have grappled with the concept of beauty for generations, and that it's a very real topic, and therefore within the divine realm there is a very real truth under the category of beauty then you'll recognize with me that you don't get to beauty ad hoc. You don't stumble in it. You don't just sort of go with how you feel about it. You have to learn to appreciate God's art. You have to be trained into its elements and its features and its perspectives and its lines and its values and all sorts of things. And in many respects, you have to be rid of the corruption that is in the world that causes you to love the rap music over the beautiful artistry of the Baroque period or some other period that has a better, you know, let's just say the beautiful singing of God's hymns. Well, that reminds me of churches that opt for modern worship with its rock style and various other formulations over against the old beautiful hymns sung, sung a cappella without any instruments. The beauty of just hearing the voices of God with nothing else going on. If we lose that value, we lose one of the beautiful things that God is calling us to. There's a time for instruments, but there should be much more time with none when you come before Almighty God. Because there's nothing like the beautiful ensemble of sanctified voices. It's a different topic, I suppose, but dear brothers and sisters, I would say to you if you think, oh, that's not us, 
Well, dear brothers and sisters, maybe not right away, but why don't we learn the principles of that beautiful exercise and see it developed by God's Spirit within his sanctuary? You see, good behavior leads to holy harmony in the heart, and that leads to an eye for divine design. I will not be digressing into a conversation about the very idea of beauty itself, though I find it very interesting. I will simply relate to you one of the observations that has been made throughout Western thought, and no doubt Eastern thought as well, at least I assume so, that it would be true. One of the observations is the reality of symmetry and harmony. That's what makes the beautiful. What makes something beautiful? Because it has balance. It is, it is well arranged. It has symmetry. It's like the cosmos. It's well arranged. It's finely tuned. And when you study art and you just study the concept of the beautiful itself in whatever form it manifests, and you ask yourself, what is it about that that makes it beautiful? What particular characteristics? Why should that seem beautiful to me over against something else? And you start to ask yourself that question. And you will discover that one of the features of it, if you have a redeemed or at least a non-degraded spirit where your mind is given over to a reprobate mind and you love the discordant, you love the out of order, you love the dissymmetry, you relish in a cacophony, you think it's the most wonderful thing because your whole heart is in rebellion and disorder and anger. If that isn't the condition of your soul, then what you will realize is this appeals to my spirit because the way the lines work, because the way the symmetry operates, because of the harmony that's within the music, within the painting, within the poetry, within the figure. It's that beautiful arrangement. And I'm saying to you, my dear brothers and sisters, that such as our hearts are, apart from the work of the Spirit within us, we don't come with a native appreciation for the arrangements of God. We rather favor a cacophony of clashing wills, ours being among them. And we don't care what kind of sound that makes. And so we don't have an appreciation for the beauty of God. That's why we need to go through the moral process first to train us into the value of God's aesthetics, His lines, his arrangement of things. And as you begin to recover from your addiction to turmoil, strife, argumentativeness, as you recover from your love and your comfortability within confusion and despair and negativity, as you obey the moral arrangement of God to say, stay in unity with my arrangement, which we'll be getting to, within this study, stay in unity with that arrangement and it'll work on your soul. And gradually, gradually you will begin to appreciate God's art, God's design, God's way of ordering things. And you'll say, you know, it's, it's beautiful the way the Lord ordained the home. I once chaffed against its arrangements in this direction or that direction. It's beautiful how God has arranged things in the church. It would be beautiful if the civil authorities would arrange themselves in the proper way under God's headship, that would be beautiful. 
And it would, it would require a lot of adjustment among a lot of people. They wouldn't be able to do a lot of things that they presently demand that they do. But if they would understand God's art and, and the pleasantness of it all, at the end of the day, it would be better for everyone. And so, as I say to you, dear brothers and sisters, arriving at the beautiful is not stage one. It's stage two. And I know some think that's negative. They want to just rush into church and rush into a religious setting and say, unity, we anoint this place with unity. Hug me. We're all in unity. And I'm not saying you shouldn't hug one another. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have a positive disposition. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying you can be as positive as you want when you get that like precious faith. When you first get converted and you're just bubbling over like the Ephesians with all kinds of first love and you think you've arrived. You can be as positive as you want, but if you want to be a serious Christian, if you want to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, you're going to have to recognize there's a process to when you get to that deeply and lastingly. We go back to 2 Samuel chapter 19 and remind you that they bowed their heart as one man, but before the chapter was over, they were fighting against each other again. The strife had returned because... This doesn't happen at the snap of the finger. If if you have sensed and know that the backdrop of my life and my experience is disunity and disharmony, then don't kid yourself. You're not going to arrive at what God is talking about next week. It's a process, brothers and sisters. But that's how you get to the pleasant. There's no other way. You see, we have a value system in many directions that is contrary to the beauty that is in the eye of the beloved beholder, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we run around convinced the various things are beautiful, and God says, no, they're not. And we may sometimes acknowledge dutifully that he must be right because he's God, but it doesn't carry an awful lot of weight with us. And I think this applies to the idea of unity within the churches and among the brethren But I will give you another realm within which this operates so that you can identify with what I'm talking about. It comes out of the Proverbs, the wisdom literature. In the last chapter, nearly the last verse of the chapter, we are told that there is a certain beauty that is vain. But that is not the way the normal human heart operates. In this case, male or female, I would argue. But let's stay with what the... Kohalach is saying, the preacher is saying, he says, favor is deceitful and beauty, physical beauty is vain. Your sense of the beauty, your standard of the beautiful, your instinct toward the beautiful. You see an attractive woman and your heart begins to pitter patter and you're certain that you've arrived at the beautiful. And that's your orientation. That's what your eyes see. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But your heart looks through your eyes. And your heart isn't trained morally and ethically and rightly arranged and trained how to understand God's divine order. And you see, when he does do that, and I think I can say it to some measure, and I would think that any godly brother who has been in the walk for some degree of time, is able to say that he can see in his spouse whether or not she is the most attractive thing that ever walked the earth. If she is a woman that fears the Lord, you're like, now that's beauty. Now I'm telling you, as far as I know my heart, that's exactly how I feel. But I didn't start that way. 
I might have not been the most lecherous man out there, but my basic orientation was, is he attractive? I think that's probably true. I seek to speak the truth in love, of course. So I have to say to you that I do think it's the case that I, as I stated before, I wasn't just looking for physical beauty. I could tell the story, and that's not really what we need to do today. But my selection and process was in the midst of fasting and prayer, in the midst of not going in various directions that I could have with other propositions, because I wasn't just looking for the beautiful. However, I recognize in my heart, as I reflect and as I develop over time, my orientation was more toward what God is pointing out here. Your sense of the beauty is on the physical, on the favor with respect to what this woman can bring to your life in various temporal directions. God says, real beauty is a woman who fears God. And I just want to state again that hopefully that single little experiment is enough to convince us of the reality that we need to learn God's values. We need to submit to the rearrangement of our standards so that we will have the eyes to see the beauty in the way that God sees it. And if you don't allow that kind of process, you're going to say, size and mere agreement, size is favor and mere agreement is beautiful. And God says, no, they're vain or something in that direction. He'll say a church that fears the Lord is to be praised because in God's eyes, as Peter says, it is very, very precious when a woman has a meek and quiet spirit as she lives in the fear of God. Amen. You know what God says about that? Listen to what he says. Peter says, in the sight of God, that is very precious. A meek and quiet woman? In which human eyes is that such a precious thing that you'd see it as worth a great deal of money to obtain. In the sight of God, that is very valuable, precious, beautiful. That is worth your heart purchasing. As it relates to the Christian church, this idea is true. Remember that the Christian church is represented as a bride. And a certain Dutch minister by the name of Wilhelmus Abrockel. Some of you will have heard of the Christian's reasonable service. It's a fairly standard, we'll call it a Dutch Puritan systematic theology effectively, but it's sort of a devotional systematic theology. Dutch Puritan might seem to some people, no, probably not Joel Beakey though, um, as a, as a weird juxtaposition of names, but, but anybody who understands this arena gets, gets my point. So we'll call him a Dutch Puritan. He writes the following as it relates to Jesus Church, when the church manifests herself as adorned with the ornament of peaceableness, she is a lovely and delightful object to all who observe her. Therefore, shine forth in the church with the eminent ointment of peaceableness. And the exhortation at this moment is not so much along the lines of an emotional attachment and longing and instinct toward living peaceably. 
but an exercise of the will because of the moral obligation that as much as lieth in you, seek to be peaceable. Because Jesus made it clear to us, men will know that you are my disciples when you have love one for another. And so once again, without diving into these ideas at every portion of Scripture and dissecting the various elements of it, once again I'm saying to you that when you are bringing this message forward with everything that has preceded it, then you know we're not talking about that Jesus was saying that just anywhere people get together as the sole premium of what constitutes their cooperation, then that's when the world will know that you're my disciples, even if you're not obeying my word. No, first he talked about sanctifying them through the truth. And we recognize there were only so many of them after years of Jesus' ministry. And he wasn't advocating. Now that you have heard John 17 in the high priestly prayer of your Lord and Savior, go out and invite everyone who separated themselves from me during my earthly ministry and tell them the only thing Jesus wants now is to see the family all together. He tried to treat, teach you discipleship, but you didn't want it. So let's just all be Christians and throw away the teaching of John 6 and John 4 and John 10 and John 15 and everywhere else. Just throw it away and let's just get together as one big fold. That's what Jesus wants. That's the new ideal. No, but he is saying that when you value the beauty of biblical unity, when you learn within your spirit how to appreciate divine order and the pleasant place that that leads everyone to, the fact that within that context is where God commands the blessing. And if you're in that context, the blessing comes to you as well. Then you begin to put into place the ethical, moral decisions that take you step at a time into a retraining of the way your eyes and heart work so that you can appreciate God's lines, God's order, God's symmetry, God's harmony. Your heart begins to change. And then Jesus' bride begins to manifest the peaceable fruit of righteousness. People see righteousness and peaceableness. They see a church that is unified in the obedience of the truth with purified souls manifesting holiness toward one another and agreeing together to do that. And they live at a very mature level, but nonetheless still in unity. And when you start filling up chairs and seats and pews and rows and churches with that, that's the time to say, behold, how good and how pleasant it is to see brethren, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ Dwelling together in unity. The same arrangement of concepts is presented to us in Psalm 147 in verse 1. I give this to you as a confirmation for the coupling of these two qualities. At this moment, it is given in the context of praise. Praise ye the Lord, the psalmist says. Why should you praise the Lord, brothers and sisters? Why? Because you feel like it. Is that why? Because the musician drives your heart with his modern equipment through the sheer energy of the decibels of the music and the beat of the cadence into a sense of, I want to be a part of this. Praise ye the Lord, for it is tov. It is good to sing praises unto our God, 
for it is naim, it is pleasant. And then he says, and praise is comely. Now, I hope you can see with me what's happening here. First, you have to understand that praise is good because God says it's good. It's tov. When God said it was all very good, he said it's tov meod. It's very good. Whether you like his world or not, it is very good. And likewise with praise, it is good and right to praise the Lord. You can gather together with however many people that are with you, with whatever quality of voices that we collectively have. Sometimes I have to drink a little bit of water. You probably do too. Partly because, you know, I'm not drinking and eating a lot before I get here and I'm going to keep that value. I'd rather have a voice that's all ready to go, but I have other priorities. And so sometimes you're a little cracking and you sound a little froggy or whatever the rest of it is. But brothers and sisters, even if you feel as if it could be better, you understand what I'm trying to say? Don't be discouraged. You come here and you worship God because it's the morally correct thing to do. And then you will discover as you allow that to work in your spirit. And I find it in mind that as I get my heart arranged and there were times when I felt like I needed more, I needed more people to make sense of this and so on and so forth. Or, you know, once upon a time when I was into music, I needed the driving. I needed the energy of the music to get into it. You know what I'm saying? But I've been delivered from a lot of that corruption. And through a process, I've come to appreciate just the beauty of praise. And now it's pleasant to my soul. And the psalmist ends in 147 verse 1 by saying, praise is comely. Now, dear friends, what you're learning there. Is, is, it is as if the museum curator is describing to you the dynamics of this piece of art. And you've gone from being ignorant about all things aesthetic when you walk through the doors into the museum, but you knew that that's where you were and you came to learn. So you went through the process of a seminar and a video training or whatever was a part of what you initially do before you enter into the galleries. And you did all that and you listened patiently and you took notes. And now you're starting to recognize how pleasant it is. That which you just would have walked past and said, when do we go to McDonald's? Now you're willing to stop and see and appreciate the perspective and the arrangement and the lines and the artistry of how this was all put together by design. And you're seeing that it's pleasant. It appeals to my spirit. I get excited to go see the next one. I want to see every single art that Raphael ever did because now I understand what he's doing. And you realize the reason why is because it's comely. It's ordered. It's arranged. There is a beauty to this that is a display of God's artistic sense. And that's what Beautiful brotherly unity is. It is a display of divine order, of the beautiful arrangement of God's lines. It is God's artistic sense manifest in a spiritual dimension within the church of Jesus Christ. Well, my dear friends, it so happens that we will put a pause at this time in looking into these matters and we will return, as the Lord allows, to this topic, most likely in two Sundays from now, seeing that we will be ministering in Vermont next Sunday. I hope that as these teachings come to your spirits, that you allow this sea to enter into honest and good hearts. We won't 
jam seeds down too rapidly into your being, so you have time to let them germinate and to find a good place within your spirit. Why don't you stand with me this afternoon and we'll give our God thanks before we ask his blessing, his benediction upon our time together.